0: I'm Tom Keane with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: David Davis says we can expect royal assent tomorrow on Article 50. And let's start there with our first guest, Alan Ruskin, Global Co-Head of FX Research at Deutsche Bank, kind enough to join us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York. Alan, great to see you. We were listening yesterday to the Prime Minister Theresa May speaking about uh, this process, uh, how it's stuck to the timetable that she set out uh, initially here. Uh, what happens next here? We have the Royal Ascent and then uh, uh, what, this moves pretty quickly from here on out.
2: Unfortunately, it probably doesn't move terribly Aha. quickly. Right. So I think uh, Theresa May might have her timetable. But uh, uh, on the other side, you've obviously got uh, a variety of different events in Europe. You've got uh, elections. And you've got a difficult group of people to negotiate with on the other side, not least because they don't want to give you two good a plan, other uh, too good a deal, because otherwise you're creating incentives for other countries to, to leave uh, the Euro or EU. So um, I think this whole process is going to get drawn out much more than people anticipate. Uh, we have this election in the Netherlands today. How much of a market-moving event uh, is that? It promised to be a market moving event. I think it's going to be much less so, just judging by what the polls are saying in terms of the way Wilders is doing in particular. The market's main focus is really, do we trust the polls, mm. right? It's less about the results, the the yeah. but um, do we trust the polls? Because if we can trust the polls, then uh, I think the recent expectations that Marine Le Pen will uh, not be elected in, in, in France is going to be trusted that much more. As you watch this play out, what, what's
1: it going to tell us about the French election? In other words, are, are we seeing uh, further contours yet of the, the populism that we saw in the US, that we saw in the UK, uh, that we've seen elsewhere in the world? Uh, is that what this portends for, for France?
2: Well, I think there's definitely, you know, that's, that, that's what people are looking at in terms of all the elections. Uh, and it's not just populism. I'd say there's something broader. There's a, just a, a, a sort of sense of splintering. There's a sense in which um, the unorthodox, can happen really, that uh, uh, parties can arise from nowhere. Um, All those sorts of uh, attributes of recent elections, uh, not just uh, in the U.K. and and U.S. in particular, but really in places like Spain and Italy, uh, are uh, are crucial really in a way. So I think people are looking at portents there for um, sort of anything unorthodox, as it were, Mm. uh, occurring uh, in both the Netherlands and and France. Alan
0: Ruskin with us on a most busy day, including the election in Holland. Uh, And, of course, Fed Day here. We're steeled for that. David Gurr and I are steeled for being on air. Ready for it, exactly. 26 hours uh, today. Alan Ruskin with us. And you you made global headlines X number of months ago with quite a call on sterling. Do you reaffirm because of the politics, because of the economics, because of the flows, a significantly weaker sterling?
2: Yes, Tom. Uh, I think there are two parts to the story. One that's not as commonly recognized as as it should be, which is that it's quite unusual for Fed funds to be trading above UK base rates to begin with. And certainly 100 basis points above uh, base rates in f- terms of Fed funds is extremely unusual. We have to go back, I think, to 1984 to, to see that kind of event. So the interest rate story is very compelling. And the interest rate story in and of itself can really drive the pound down uh, yeah. to you know sort of 110 or thereabouts. So that's even before you consider the politics, which you've obviously just been talking about, which uh, could get really strung out. And uh, uh, there's no easy deals awaiting uh, Theresa May. And uh, unfortunately, therefore, that combination between the politics and uh, the more orthodox story in terms of interest rate differentials is going to drive this thing down uh, to, we still think, below 110. Watching oil, we've been watching it for the last
1: 24 hours here. So wow. saw the, the market movements yesterday. Uh, go, go to the history for us, if you would. Compare this to 2014, 2015. Are, are, are they uh, analogues as you see them?
2: Yeah, I think people are too ready to actually Draw compare that their, Yeah, that parallel. Uh, absolutely. Because I think if you look at the moves and the scale of the moves that we had in 2014-15, we went from, I think, uh, roughly about $106 per barrel uh, on WTI down to about $26, an $80 move, really. This time around, we've got you know, roughly a tenth of that move. Um, you just can't compare that. And then, of course, we're in terrain we've already been in, yeah. right? We've been in quite recently. So I don't think this move in oil is nearly as disruptive for any of the markets. And in fact, because it's actually driven by the supply side, it's not indicative of weak demand, I think actually it will be helpful for the economy. How big a bellwether are oil prices uh,
1: as you see them when you look at uh, what they might say about the health of the, the economy?
2: Yeah, I think you, you, you obviously do need to look at the fact that uh, oil typically is correlated with other commodity prices and is correlated with uh, equities as well. so uh, it definitely is uh, procyclical. Uh, and I therefore like to look at what other commodities are doing. And if you actually look at base metals, for example, they don't tend to confirm uh, the down swing that we've actually had in oil of late. So it tends to suggest that oils a particular story rather than you know, indicative of broader weakness. What are you listening
1: for today from the, the Fed chair? Uh, I was thinking back of all the speeches that we heard of these last few weeks, and um, Lael Brainerd stood out to me just because Lael Brainerd stood (laughs) stood out here, indicating there might be a rate increase, but also because she spoke about the role of global uh, events. What what are you going to be listening for today from uh, from the Fed chair?
2: Yeah, so I think in the initial instance, you're looking at uh, their forecasts and you're looking at the dots. And then you're swinging over, I think, uh, to what Janet Yellen has to say Mm. about the state of the economy. And... Uh, what's really happening, I think, as much on the inflation front as on the growth side. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get huge surprises yeah. there. Keep in mind that <laughs> she spoke uh, you know, a little over 10 days yeah. ago, really, in a sense. So I think it's going to be hard for her to top that, really, when she was sending a message that, look, the Fed is not really behind the curve, but we do need to tighten. And I think she said uh, some strong words about 2017 is not the same as the prior two years. Of yeah, we, yeah. We're basically going to speed this thing up a bit. Mm.
0: I, I look, Alan, at the at the ballet here, and, and Greg Peters of PGM was on yesterday saying essentially this is a May or June rate increase crammed into March. Not that there's a risk that they'll get out front or the parlor game of whether they're right or wrong, but there's got to be a lot more economic data, particularly on wage growth. It's just not there. In, I mean, if inflation's going up, real wage growth doesn't lift, does it?
2: Yeah, I think uh, you've got to be careful there, Tom, because I think one of the lessons of the 1970s, in fact, was that wage is really a lagging indicator rather than a leading indicator. And people got obsessed with uh, wage growth. Plus,
0: they're obsessed, but plus when it goes, it goes, right?
2: Exactly. So I think that's the problem. uh, You're dealing with a lagging indicator, something that uh, lags by something like 18 months to two years relative to the cycle. So by the time you're actually seeing uh, genuine inflation pressures, really, the cat's out the bag as such. And you're then going to have to hike rates much more than you would want. So, uh, I think there's not much debate about whether this move today, well, the expected move today is the right one, really. No. I think people feel absolutely 25 basis points is a minimum.
0: Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate Ellen Alan Ruskin with terrific perspective this morning. And thank you so much for helping us with our interview with Tom Nichols on the death of, because you are. One of the perfect examples of the advantage of expertise that we have.
2: Thank you so much, Tom, for having me. Tom
0: Nichols coming up soon on the death of expertise. He's got an entire chapter on Alan Ruskin. No, I'm kidding. It's a great, great book. In the paperback edition, yeah. In the paperback (laughs) edition. Alan Ruskin with Deutsche Bank with perspective. And really that call on sterling is remarkable. I believe I heard him say below uh, 110 as being not certitude, but certainly a tendency towards... Joseph Antos is at the American Enterprise Institute. I guess that labels him as a conservative or some form of right. Maybe you'd put him. But there is such a respect for Joe Antos' work that everyone listens. We've been trying to do that with different perspectives uh, over the last number of days. Joe Antos, wonderful to have you back on the show. If you were to have a cup of coffee now with an elderly middle income lower income person right now, how would you explain trump care?
3: Well actually, if it's an elderly person over sixty five I wouldn't have much to explain because medicare is is untouched by this but if it's an older person under the age of sixty five uh i would I would say that um mm-hmm. Uh, if they're uh, looking to buy their own insurance uh, on the individual market, uh, that uh, they're likely to get a subsidy. Uh, but depending on their income level, uh, it could be yeah. substantially lower than it, than it was uh, under the Affordable Care Act. Away
0: from the social grid of liberals want to take care of everybody. And conservatives want to spend less money. That's simplistic juvenile statement. That's all I'm good for, Joe. (laughs) How far apart is Joe Antos from Andy Slavitt, who helped President Obama implement ACA? How far apart are liberals and conservatives in this health debate?
3: Well, you know, I think there are there are some similarities in in views. Uh, I think the Affordable Care Act has permanently changed uh, the way health insurance is sold in this country, people will not be refused coverage because they have a pre-existing health condition. Uh, uh, Democrats clearly embrace that, and Republicans do, too. I think the, the debate is over how you do it, where the control is, uh, and, uh, of course, uh, uh, a problem for both Republicans and Democrats, where you get the money and how much do you spend.
1: Why isn't there more willingness to compromise here? We heard from the House Speaker Paul Ryan yesterday saying in light of that score from the Congressional Budget Office, which, of course, uh, you know well, uh, he's not willing to make changes to this piece of legislation. What message does that send, Uh, yes, to members of his own party who may be on the fence about this, but also to Democrats who might feel like uh, this is exclusionary, that there really isn't an attempt here to get everybody on board to make this thing right?
3: Well, I think it's too early to know uh, how that's going to work out. Uh, Paul Ryan is in a bit of a bind. uh, 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 It's called the American Health Care Act. The American Health Care Act is trying to split the difference within the Republican Party uh there there are republicans who, who don't want to see uh subsidies go to people who don't have a t- tax liability for example uh paul Ryan is opposed to that he believes that uh low income people who don't have a tax liability are, are precisely the people you need to help uh uh but on the other hand uh you have the senate senate uh republicans saying we need more of a plan well so he's he 's stuck basically, so I think where the where the action's going to be is in the Senate, and uh, that 's where you you i mean certainly need bipartisanship in general, but if Republicans hope to pass anything this year they 're going to need some help uh, from Democrats
1: who supports this bill, of course, of course, the House Speaker does those who drafted it. Uh, support it. But uh, wh- where, where is the font of support outside of the House of Representatives? You hear from doctors. Um, doctors groups don't like it. Insurers are saying they weren't included in the writing of this. How problematic is it that you don't have a
3: lot of people rallying behind this legislation? I think it's a real issue. Uh, although it does reflect human nature, uh, uh, everyone in the health sector uh, went through, uh, you know, what's basically eight years of change. Uh, some of it good, some of it not so good. Uh, but human nature is that once they've gone through that, they don't really want to make any more changes. Uh, and and I think that's that's part of the problem. And and the other part of the problem, especially coming from the states, coming from the hospitals, is this bill looks like uh, the, uh, according to the CBO, and I think uh, I don't know about their number, but I think the direction yeah. is right. There are going to be possibly 14 million people without insurance uh, put up, you know, who lose insurance because of this bill right away, ultimately 24 million. Whether the number is right or not, the point is that that hospitals are going to see more people coming into the hospital without insurance. Uh, Insurers are going to see less business. Uh, and uh, uh, that's a real problem well, for the business of healthcare.
0: Joseph Antos, thank you so much. Too short. We hope to get you back again. American Enterprise Institute. Can't say enough about his reading. I'll put out the essay that Mr. Antos co-wrote uh, here the other day. <music> Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Dedicated. To bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world, that's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch Pierce Fenner and Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. He is seeing forty-seven Grapefruit League games this year. Douglas Cass of <laughs> Seabreeze Partners. Mr. Thomas, good morning, uh. Doug. Let me let me just cut to the chase. How do the Dodgers look this year?
4: Uh, number 22 just came in from the Baltimore Orioles. How did the Dodgers look this year? Tom wants to know, Jim.
5: They have a high
0: payroll. Okay. They have a high payroll. <laughs> they have <laughs> a high <laughs> payroll, which is what Jim Palmer wishes he had a few years ago. We'll get to Mr. Palmer here in a bit. We're thrilled to bring you the Hall of Famer, Jim Palmer of the Baltimore Orioles, here a bit on the state of baseball that Doug and I love. Uh, Dearly. Doug, let's talk about the markets here for the next uh, uh, section or or show. You have been cautious. You've watched the bull market walk away from you. And everybody knows, even the most uber bull, that there are telltale signs. You are looking, as always as a pro, at the bond market to give you the signals for the equity market. What do you see in bonds right now? I think bonds
4: are implying, based upon the six or seven-decade relationship between uh, nominal GDP, which is real GDP plus inflation, uh, compared um, uh, compared to current, let's say, 10-year bond yields, that we are not going to move out of this uh, subpar period of economic growth uh, that we've been in for the last three to five years. Um, I suspect that we are far more advanced in this business cycle than the consensus believes. Um, If if, if we look at three basic areas, retail, auto sales, and housing, I form that conclusion. Retail's obviously being eviscerated. The problems lie beyond Amazon and uh, the changing channels of distribution. And I think the weather now is going to be a death knell to the season. Auto sales have clearly peaked. We have the highest inventory to sales ratios in a decade. We have rapidly rising delinquencies on auto paper, and we have near record high incentive. And these pose a threat to a larger than expected drop in production. And finally, housing is is peaking. Um, I'm confident that national housing data is soon going to hit a very important inflection point. Um, What is typical, the peak is now occurring. You know, I started out when I graduated business school. I was a housing analyst at Kidder Peabody. And always it starts with the coast weakening. In Florida, we have what I call the South Beach housing bubble, which is spreading north to other fa- other areas um, uh, north of Miami. Prices are turning lower, in some cases much lower, and the same applies to formerly hot and bubblicious areas of California. And as it relates to retail and housing, refinancings are, are about to evaporate, and that supplemental income, is used to renovate homes to buy new appliances other durables like autos and that's going to disappear and the final sign relating to the bond market is we're obviously seeing a broad retreat in commodities across the board dr copper crude oil and now uh yesterday i noted that the high yield market um demonstrated by the largest etf hyg moved under its 200-day moving average um, it seems to me that we're in a period of extended low interest rates, although I did call for a generational low in bond yields in your show last July, and I think, think that still, hands, still stands. But low interest rates for long periods of time, like we've had since '09, entice and invite temptation And the history of American finance is populated by these speculative booms in markets, complacency, and then busts so to to summarize, I think that we have these conditions of slowing growth uh, we're at thirty times cyclically adjusted earnings that right. are chiller sourced we're at nineteen times non gap earnings we're at twenty seven times gap earnings, and the spread between gap and non gap is the widest in history. So, I think the ingredients for a Minsky moment may be at hand just when most investors, strategists and the business media is looking mm-hmm. At the uh, spring skies, at the cloudless skies of investment mm. opportunity, I would say, I would state simply that the irrational is now being now, rationalized.
0: David, jump in. Yeah, I want to ask you about
1: high yield. You've been you've been ringing the bell, uh, warning about high yield junk bonds for for some time now. Uh, give us a sense of of why you're so concerned.
4: Well, you're seeing a deterioration in the commodities market. That's very important, especially of an oil kind, to the high yield market. Mm. Um, so so in keeping with my slower growth for, slower domestic real growth for longer um i would be increasingly concerned and after all the spread between high yield bonds and treasuries which maybe a year and a half ago was 800 basis points um uh, went down to about 330 basis points last week so i think we could see a widening in those spreads, but those, you know, those are—it's high yield is just one of a number of conditions yeah. which suggests to me well, that we are ripe for a tradable correction of consequences.
0: Doug, kiss thirty seconds here, and we'll come back and continue a market discussion before we speak to the gentleman we really want to speak to. Uh, Doug, are, are you? in are, are you in the market? Want to speak yeah, to me? Are you, Doug? Are you in the market? I mean, are you long equities here?
4: Um, I'm long and short. I run a, a hedged. Yeah, but uh, so you're in the market. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we never talk about my longs. My favorite long for last, for 2016 was DuPont. It was up nearly 50%. Okay. My favorite short well, was Coca-Cola. I just wanted to
0: get 12%. this out of the way because the, the cast detractors think he's never in the market, and that's baloney. With Doug Cass and later the Hall of Famer Jim Palmer. Douglas Cass, the Seabreeze Partners, will have a special guest here uh, in a few uh, minutes. Doug, uh, on the state of the markets and on the linkage here, it's been so long since we've had a legit correction, ages since we've had a, a bear market. Why is Without that, Ben? It's it a is it, decline. Is it, is it, been just the continued generation of free cash flow by corporations, or do you say yelling, yelling, yelling?
4: I say yelling, yelling, and also brainwash, brainwash. Yeah. Uh, by that I mean, um, you know, I, I use this valiant Pershing Square situation as kind of a template for what's going on in the market. It wasn't only Acme you act; it was Viking, it was Sequoia uh, that were uh, Paulson and Company that were brainwashed and sort of dropped their Dukes as if they were in a heavyweight. Um, the fight, but it wasn't rope-a-dope like uh, uh, Muhammad Ali. Um, It was kind of this massive group stink, and that's what happens after seven years of zero interest rates. You get get people, you get $90 billion lost in value by the greatest minds in the hedge fund community. The market simply isn't efficient, as investors may soon find out. Um, And I think that the S&P is much like Valiant, and, uh, and we're going we're to have a big lesson learned. But getting back to what you said, there are stocks that I like, and I am long stocks as well as short stocks.
1: Give us a few of them. I know uh, Sears isn't one of them.
4: No, Sears, <laughs> Sears is, go, is going bankrupt. Look, I like to find companies that are uh, fodder for takeovers. Um, if you think about it, the ideal corporate target has a bunch of characteristics. Uh, it's a bite-sized market capitalization in which an activist or uh, a company can acquire a meaningful position to influence management, it's a company that's large enough to move the needle of a potential acquirer. It's a product company that has a product portfolio, to use Buffett's adjective, is sticky. Uh, it has a competitive moat, a market position unaffected by technological obsolescence, and Return on assets, invested capital that can be improved through divestitures, cost cutting, basically through a more attentive and aggressive management team, a company that generates a reasonable, steady, and predictable amount of cash flow, et cetera. The two companies that I think qualify and are candidates for takeover in my portfolio are Hartford Financial Group, mm-hmm. HIG, and Campbell um, uh, Soup, CPD.
1: Good soup, said the president just a little while back uh, at the White House when the CEO was there. Yesterday
4: yesterday I purchased for the first time Twitter. And I think Twitter, too, is a candidate. And my view is that ultimately Facebook, which has tried to copy Twitter unsuccessfully, is going to acquire Twitter in the low 20s. I think Twitter is a remarkable canvas. In, in which humanity paints these these unbelievable thoughts and, mm. and delivers real-time information and news. And it can't be uh, duplicated. And people forget that the company has a, no debt, a large amount, $2 billion, $3 billion of cash. So um, the enterprise value is only uh, about $8.9 billion today. We're going to talk... That's-
1: we're going to talk to your house guest here in just a, just a little bit, Doug, but let me, let me ask you lastly, just to return to, to what we had with Pershing and Bill Ackman leaving Valiant, what's the legacy of that going to be? What's the lesson learned from the way all of this went down, the, the, the adamant stance that Bill Ackman took for so long and now uh, losing, yeah, what, two, two plus billion dollars? I think,
4: I think he suffered from style drift. He betrayed his style that um, resulted in enormous successes. He's a hedge fund icon, even with this um, with this investment boner. He he used to be take active stakes in troubled companies. In the case of Valiant, he took a passive stake in what seemed to be a flourishing company.
0: Well, I guess that about puts it, and we'll see. We'll have much more on it as we go. Let's bring in uh, with Doug Cass. Jimmy, you want to get partners. on? Yeah, you know, have, have uh, your guests... Uh, jump on the phone. Let me explain this to everybody out there who's of a younger vintage. The world stopped in the early 1970s in baseball over the excellence of Earl Weaver's squad. Here are the statistics. 2020 21-22, 23-22-20, 21, and there's no whining about having eight bullpen guys uh, behind him. Jim Palmer was the workhorse of baseball and did it uh, throwing conservatively 27, if not 30 percent more innings than the kids do today, including the wonderful David Price of the uh, Boston Red Sox. He's a Hall of Famer, uh, Jim Palmer. Jim, wonderful to have you on with us and And i I know I can speak for Doug Cass and for so many listening across this nation. We gotta get baseball back. I'm bored, bored. Bored with the game. What do we do? Well, to- the
5: thing is, you know, you don't want to make the really the the grave mistake of actually listening to news. Um, you know, it's funny. I I don't do a lot of spring training games. I still yeah. do eighty games for the Orioles. So, um, in fact, we have the Red Sox. Uh, I'll be in Boston uh, the second week of April when the Orioles. Uh, we play. I, you know, the good thing about playing the Red Sox this year, I think we get rid of most of the games going into the uh, the, the after the first week of September. So we get we get right. the Red Sox out of the way, and they, well, you know, they won 94 games last year. It looks like they're going to have a pretty good club well, on paper. And the reason I say that is, remember the name Jimmy Williams when he was yeah, the Red Sox? Yeah. I, you know, so earlier in the year when I said, Jimmy, you know, it looks like it's a pretty good club. He said... He said, yeah, on paper. He said, and you know what we do with paper. So, yeah, exactly. um, just think about." So, Jim, uh, it, you know, I can't wait for baseball. <clears throat> I,
0: I, well, I'll agree with that, and it's good to see Christian Sale put on the right uniform uh, this year. <laughs> help, me, help me, Jim Palmer, with the fact we need eight relievers to end every game. I mean, the game goes on, well, on and on with the pitching changes. Can we somehow get back to the magic that you guys had where you went out there and threw the ball?
5: No, you know, I think, you know, again, the, the, the sabermetrics of, uh, you know, the sabermetricians of baseball have kind of taken over. So, you know, if you're, I mean, we saw it in the World Series, you know, we yep. saw, uh, you know, Terry Francona, you know, against the the Cubs. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, the Cubs have won 200 games over the last two years. You know, they won 101, 103 last year, 97 uh, since Joe Madden took over. But they went to the bullpens, you know, Chapman pitched with, what, a five-run lead in game six and almost cost them the World Series. Mm. So I think there's a tendency when you have a good bullpen. They look at the numbers. The hitters have more trouble with the back end of the bullpen. You know, the badge of, you know, I, when I got to the Orioles, I, I roomed with Robin Roberts. Now, anybody that is a baseball historian, I was 19, Robin was 38. He had 270 wins on his way to the Hall of Fame. You know, one of the whiz kids with the Phillies in the 50s yeah. trying to win 300 games. And he, he told me, he said, listen, you know, Jimmy, he said, first of all, the fastball is the best pitch in baseball, and you have a great one. I hope you're smart enough to understand that. He said, you got a fastball, you can throw a first strike. You got one, you can throw a well, ball, you stay with your breaking let's, ball. Let's, so let's, it's just, the yeah. game has changed. Yeah, you were uh, terrible. You, know, you were, you you were,
0: you you were, were going to fail. Jim Palmer was 5-4 his first season with the Baltimore Orioles. Total failure. We'll come back with Jim Palmer of the Baltimore Orioles and Douglas Cass of Seabreeze Partners. Bonus round, Mr. Cass brought someone along who's been better long in the market than Doug Cass, and that would be Jim Palmer of Baltimore. Of course, and, and he
4: beat cousin Sandy Koufax. He his did last start.
0: In, in, in a few uh, a few years ago. Jim Palmer with us at the Baltimore Orioles, and of course, helping out with so much of their uh, media work. Jim Palmer, eighty nine wins last year, as usual. The Orioles can put the thing out of the park. Uh, very good uh, defense, phenomenal relief pitching. What does a team like that do in that division when they need to go out and find starters? What will the Baltimore Orioles do to change from 89 wins to the 90 that are needed to go all the way and further?
5: Well, ideally, you'd you'd like to have a couple of your young pitchers step up. Uh, You know, the two candidates, uh, Mike Wright and Tyler Wilson, Wright's Done all right in spring training. Wilson struggled a little bit. In fact, uh, one of the best games I saw pitch last year actually against the Red Sox, and that's hard to do in Fenway Park, was by Tyler Wilson. He just couldn't sustain it. Um, Unfortunately, you know, know, what the Red Sox have done so well – Uh, Obviously, they have a great team. I mean, they lose David Ortiz. They went out and got Mitch Moreland. You know, Pedroia is is one of their leaders. Had a great year. He what, hit three eighteen last year. You know, Hanley Ramirez. They moved him to first base. More comfortable. Hit thirty home runs. So, you know, they don't really need a DH. I think the key to their team, other than the fact that, as you mentioned, they got Chris Sale, one of the great left-handers in baseball. Prices had some elbow problems. Mm-hmm. Porcello went twenty-two and four. That's I don't care how good you are. That's hard to to repeat. Uh, we gave them Eduardo Rodriguez for Andrew Miller, so they had the starting pitchers. I would have, you know, I would have liked them uh, uh, maybe kept, you know, Jake Arrieta who won the Cy Young award two years ago. They didn't do that. They let Rodriguez go. So. Uh, Chris Tillman's had shoulder problems; he is not throwing at the moment, so he's the Orioles' number one guy. So, you know, guys like Kevin Gosman, who had a nice finish last year, won seven and two the last two months. Yes, he's going to have to step up. But the Red Sox, you know, on paper, the the, the the three best teams in my estimation in the American League East, the Red Sox probably have the the best starting pitching. You know, whether Tyler Thornburg coming over from Atlanta is going to help their right. bullpen. Right. Uh, then you got Cleveland. People forget how good Cleveland's going to be. They they went to the World Series without Salazar or Carrasco. So they're going to be back. And then the team to really look at, especially if uh, Dallas Keuchel, who won the Cy Young Award two years ago, gets healthy, is the Houston Astros. You know, they got Beltron. They got very cool.
0: I will look you know, at Yeah, they that. have a nice no. team.
5: So um, it's it's yeah. you know it, it, we only great time thing about baseball at this time is that everybody has a chance. Now maybe you don't say that.
0: Yeah, but May we first. said that about Doug Cass's portfolio as well. Let's bring in David Gurdjian. Yeah, you know? we're we're talking to Jim Palmer
5: from Shea
1: Cass down in in Florida. But Jim, let me ask you about uh, the buoyancy of Baltimore. Uh, the city that that you call home part of the year. How's it doing? And and when you're there, I mean particularly interested in the degree to which young people are getting interested in baseball still. We talk about how long these games are well, and they how have, long they can <laughs> you can keep our attention. They have that beautiful park Camden, there. Now. Talk about the buoyancy of Baltimore right now.
5: Well, I mean, obviously, you know, we had the Freddie Gray incident two years ago. And, we're, you know, I think that that it's a much more aware city. Adam Jones, who's now been with the Orioles, I think is going to be his eighth year, uh, you know, being an African-American player. I think he understands how important he is. The thing about baseball in in Baltimore, you know, you compete with the Ravens. Uh, You know, the Ravens have a terrific, uh, uh, you know, organization. But the one thing about baseball, I think the thing that hurt the Orioles the most was the the fact that they have a team about 50 miles away with with the Nationals. And not only are the Nationals 50 miles away, they're a good ball club. You know, they have a great ball club. They have a new ballpark. Uh, You know, Dusty Baker, a longtime friend of mine, manages the team. So, you know, a lot of our fan base came from there. But uh, I learned this when I was doing the playoffs in 1988. I used to go down and play volleyball, we were out in L.A., and one of the the guy said, I thought you and Al Michaels and Tim McCarver were really off last night. The Dodgers had lost 3-2. to two. The next night, they win 9-4. to four. I come back to play volleyball the next morning before they go to the ballpark to do the game. And he said, God, you guys were great. So I have found as a broadcaster, when the Orioles win, and that's what they've done since Buck Showalter came on board, yeah. I'm a much better broadcaster. So I hope that's the case this year. But right. I think the one thing, and Tom kind of covered this, the, the Orioles, they have a very loyal fan base. But at the end of the day they need to go out and find some starting pitching. And I would not be surprised with Tillman's injury if they go out and maybe sign Doug Piston yeah. and hope that he's able to maybe uh, get back to where he was a couple of years ago.
0: Let me ask you the news item of the moment, and then we'll let you go on with your day of helping Doug Cass lose money shorting, <laughs> uh, which is Jim Palmer, help me with the world baseball event going on now. Mike, Michael Givens is with the U.S. and Mr. Mercado a little bit, um, uh, distracted as well. Do you like this idea that these players aren't in spring training and are doing the World Baseball Congress?
5: Um, I think, you know, I have mixed emotions. Yeah. I never could have done it personally because I t- t- for for a guy that, you know, I played on a team over the, what, really almost 20 years that I played for the Orioles, we had the best winning percentage. And we did that by going to spring training. Earl Weaver used to always have the meetings. He was my manager most of that time and said, listen, if we play together, you know, and it's not only 25 guys, it's really your 40 man roster. At the end of the year, if we do the things we're capable of doing, we're going to be all right. And we usually were. Uh, you know, we didn't always get to the World Series, but we were usually in the top, you know, three teams in the American League uh, division mm-hmm. or whatever. So when you take your players away, I think it really hurts your ball club. If you look, you know, Hanley Ramirez, the Red Sox, I'm not sure they have any key players. Uh, because they they understand last year, you know they won ninety four games. It's not just about getting to the yeah. postseasons. It, it's it's what the Red Sox okay. did in two thousand four, two thousand nine, two thousand thirteen, yeah. and I think most clubs, um, you know, you get it's great to play for your country, and I understand that. Uh, I mean, you know, if you're a Dominican player and you come over here, you know, you represent the Dominican Republic. But the, the bottom line is you get paid uh, a lot of money now, and that's the great thing about baseball, right. to play for your fans. And if you get hurt or uh, you're not able to play with the same intensity, um, and I understand spring training is boring, I, I think it's a good thing. I just wish they could come up with a better time of the year where you actually okay. get the best American players to actually play for the well. Team USA.
0: We are honored. Jim Great Palmer. Fun, yeah. Thank you uh, so much on behalf of, I think we have like four Baltimore, was it four or is it six Baltimore Oriole fans within Bluebird? Uh, we've Met. got
1: Julie Hyman writing in saying how they glad are. she was to hear Mr. Palmer and, on and the radio. Not only
0: that, but Jim Palmer, Muhammad El-Aryan, who's done better than good in economics since his kind regards this morning. <laughs> Doug Cass, thank you, thank you, thank you. May you prosper, Doug Cass, at least for the next trading A lot of fans have on one as well, I'm uh, sure. With Seabreeze Partners. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gurra is at David Gurra. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.